The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good evening, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. The time is 7.05. It's Tuesday, February 4th, and we thank you for tuning in. I'm Nick Savage. And I'm Andrew Eichen. Tonight we bring you an interview with a local museum's director, as well as a discussion with the creators of an innovative and locally developed mobile app. In addition, we bring you coverage on an incredible feat of paper engineering that's being used to change many lives in Africa. But first, it's time for the news. This week in news on Eye on the Triangle. A brief rundown of the latest news. More than 1,200 people are under investigation for a U.S. military recruitment fraud during the Iraq War, officials say. Two generals and a dozen dozens of colonels were implicated in the alleged scheme in which referral fees were illegally collected for recruiting soldiers. The fraud is said to have already cost the government at least $29 million and may top $100 million in total. The National Guard program, established in 2005 and later expanded to the Army and Army Reserve, paid soldiers, civilians, and retirees $2,000 to $7,500 to recruit friends and family, according to congressional documents. According to investigators, numerous sheets, numerous schemes were used to defraud under the program, which saw the Army pay out more than $300 million for 130,000 recruits during the Iraq War. High school principals and guidance counselors were said to have accepted money for recruiting students who they knew were already planning to join the U.S. military. Other recruiters illegally accepted bonuses after forcing subordinates to register as recruiting assistants before submitting their own bank account information. More than 700 recruiters and 200 military officers are under investigation, and several former recruiters and soldiers have been indicted on federal charges. A California man has been charged with being the alleged owner of the Silk Road, a black market website that brokered $1 billion in transactions. Ross William Albright, 29, is accused of drug trafficking, computer hacking, and money laundering. Prosecutors allege he deliberately operated the site as a criminal enterprise and solicited six murders for hire. Mr. Albright's lawyers say his client will plead not guilty to all charges. Authorities say Mr. Albright operated the Silk Road website under the name Dread Pirate Roberts. Purchases were made using virtual currency Bitcoin. He was, ex- he was arrested last year and the site was shut down by the FBI. Officials seized $150 million worth of Bitcoins as part of the investigation. Silk Road allowed visitors to browse nearly 13,000 listings, many of them for illegal drugs, but also offered forged documents, computer hacking, services, and pirated media content, prosecutors say. And Microsoft announced today that Satya Nadella will be its next chief executive. The Indian-born Nadella is currently Microsoft's head of cloud and enterprise, which builds and runs the firm's computing platforms and developer tools. He takes over from Steve Ballmer, who announced plans to step down last year. Company founder Bill Gates said that there's no better person to lead Microsoft. Gates is stepping down as chairman, and it was also announced, but will take up a new role as technology advisor and will retain a seat on Microsoft's board. Microsoft's lead independent director, John Thompson, will take over as chairman. And that's it for national news. Thanks, Andrew. And now let's turn to Sydney for our international news highlights. 
Thanks for that. After four decades of conflict in the southern Philippines that has killed tens of thousands of people, the Philippine government announced Saturday, January 25th, that it signed a deal with the country's largest Muslim rebel group, known as the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. Negotiators had met, Malaysia, had met in Malaysia on Wednesday, January 22nd, and had since agreed on not only graduating deactivating the rebel forces, but also three other settlements, including a normalization deal that explains how the rebels will disarm and create a security force to supervise what would be a Muslim self-rule area. The Philippines president, Benigno Aquino, hopes to achieve the peace resolution before 2016. This deal is the last of four power-sharing accords between the government and the Moro rebels. The southern Philippines, however, is not only affected by the Moro rebels, it's still hindered by poverty and instability due to other armed groups that also manage there. More recently, however, on Wednesday, January 29th, 37 Islamist fighters opposed to the peace deal were reported killed after a two-day offensive against the challenging insurgents. Sunday, January 26th, one of the leaders of the anti-government protests in Thailand, Sutan Teratin, was killed after being shot in the head and chest. Since the protests, known as the People's Democratic Reform Committee, began, this casualty now brings the death toll to 10. Teratin was killed when violence broke out in Bangkok amongst demonstrators when protesters attempted to block the early voting there, a preface to the dubious election for president next week. Even 11 more people were wounded during the fight, and as polling stations were shut down all over the capital, isolated street brawls also began to break out. The crowd of demonstrators, however, saw no police interference due to the current president, Ying Luck Shinawat, ordering the police to avert violence as to avoid prompting a military coup. The main opposition party in Thailand petitioned to annul the disrupted national election on Tuesday, February 4th. Fifty-two people were killed after armed insurgents attacked a village in northeast Nigeria on Monday, January 27th, ultimately burning the village to the ground. The attack is linked to the increasing confrontations caused by militants defying an eight-month-old military state of emergency placed to halt the uprising of the armed group Boko Haram, meaning Western education is forbidden in the local hostile language. The group is believed to be responsible for at least 170 people killed this past month in similar attacks by the network around Maiduguri. The violence has led more than 5,000 refugees to seek shelter in Cameroon and Niger this month. Tuesday, January 28th, Ukraine's Prime Minister Mykola Azarov resigned from his position in a bid to create more peace between protesters and the Ukrainian government. And despite just passing the law nearly two weeks prior on January 16th, on Monday, January 27th, Ukraine's president, Viktor Yanukovych, agreed to scrap his anti-protest laws as violence continued in the country's capital, Kiev. A key opposition leader, Arseniy Yatsenyuk, Yatsenyuk, said that same week, that same weekend that his party was prepared to lead Ukraine. But when Yanukovych offered him the prime minister's job on Saturday, Saturday January 25th, he declined. Yatsenyuk said that at, said at the time that the protests would continue until its demands, including Yanukovych's resignation, were met. On Monday, January 27th, Yanukovych announced that arrest, arrested activists would not receive amnesty until the demonstrations and occupation of buildings ended. Parliament soon backed him on this when they passed a measure Wednesday, twi- January 29th, promising just that. The protests in Ukraine have been going on since late November of last year. Two weeks ago, three dissenters died in the consequent conflicts. A state of emergency in the capital is expected to be called soon.
This past Saturday, February 1st, Mount Sinabung in Indonesia erupted, allowing lava and rock fragments to spread up to 2.8 miles away in the northern Sumatra province, leaving a death toll of 16. The volcano has been grumbling for months, and despite authorities evacuating thousands of villagers when they feared another eruption, people returned just the day before the volcano did er explode, having believed the volcano's activity were, was decreasing. Violence between Muslim and Christian communities continue in Central African Republic, leaving 70 people dead and dozens of houses lit on fire Monday, February 3rd. Despite the leader of Muslim fighters that seized power from the then-Christian-led government back in March of last year, stepping down as president last month, the violence has continued, making the challenge of bringing peace to the former French colony by French and African peacekeepers that much more difficult. According to a report released by the World Health Organization on Monday, February 3rd, cancer cases worldwide are expected to increase 57% by 2032. The report, compiled by about 250 scientists from over 40 countries, says that even in countries with less developed health care, access to effective and relatively inexpensive cancer drugs would drastically cut death rates, and that approximately half of all cancer could be avoided if current knowledge about cancer prevention was appropriately applied. And that's the international news. Thanks, Sydney. Well, Katie, we had a rainy and dreary day today. Do you know how long this rain will be sticking around for and when things will begin to clear out again? Well, Andrew, you're right. Today it was pretty cold and rainy out there due to a chilly high-pressure system that swept its way into the triangle from the north in combination with a cold front which settled just south of the central part of the state. This caused highs to only peak into the low 40s today, and we have been seeing quite a bit of rain since this afternoon due to the system. And it looks like lows will be in the upper 30s tonight with rain continuing into the overnight hours and into tomorrow morning. So be sure to grab an umbrella on your way, on your way out the door tomorrow morning. Also keep in mind that there will be areas of dense fog throughout the early morning hours tomorrow. So if you are a commuter, please use caution while driving as the visibility will be low. The rain should taper off by around lunchtime tomorrow and gradually clear things out and become mostly sunny across the region with a high of 60 degrees. Now, this is going to feel a lot warmer than it has been lately, so consider wearing a T-shirt under your coat tomorrow. This brief warm spell expected tomorrow is because of a warm front just to our south that will be pushing northward into our region tomorrow morning. But don't get too comfortable too quickly, because by tomorrow night, another frontal system will be sweeping in and taking over, cooling us back down rather quickly as northwesterly winds will begin blowing cooler air back into the region, bringing us down to a chilly low of 34 degrees. Now, this is just a couple degrees away from freezing. But it looks like Thursday will be an overall pleasant day with partly sunny skies and highs in the upper 40s. On Thursday evening, expect overnight lows right around the freezing mark at 32 degrees with increasing clouds building into the region. By Friday, we will have mostly cloudy skies and a slight chance of rain in the afternoon hours. Highs will be in the mid to upper 40s with an overnight low of 35 degrees and mostly cloudy skies. Now on Friday night, our chances of rain will increase to about 50%. So be sure to have some rain gear with you if you're planning on heading out for some weekend fun in downtown Raleigh. This weekend looks like the perfect weekend to hit the movies or simply take it easy inside somewhere because... Cold and rainy weather is on the way and expected on both Saturday and Sunday, with highs in the upper 40s and lows in the mid to upper 30s. So overall this week, it looks like the rain will taper off by tomorrow morning, clearing things out and giving us a nice break with a peak or two of sunshine. But then by Friday, the rain is expected to move right on out of here again and last through 
the entire weekend. Now, some areas across the state, mainly counties north and west of here, might experience another round of winter weather this Sunday through Monday if temperatures manage to stay cold enough and warrant the store system. Storm system. However, there still remains considerable uncertainty at the extent and type of what wintry precipitation at this time regarding this event. At this time, it looks like temperatures will be too warm across the Triangle region for a winter weather outbreak, but that could very well change as the weather is known to change quite a bit around here. So stay tuned this week for any winter weather updates that may be issued at NOAA's National Weather Service website at www.weather.gov for more information. I'm meteorologist Katie Costa. Thanks for listening to your weekly weather update here on Eye on the Triangle. Back to you, Nick. Thanks, Katie. And now here's Ben with From the Sidelines. From the Sidelines on Eye on the Triangle. Your weekly update on athletic events. The men's basketball team played twice this past weekend, narrowly defeating Florida State 74-70 at home and then losing at rival UNC 84-70. In a game that was close throughout, T.J. Warren led the pack to victory against FSU with a game-high 30 points, as well as a game-winner with six seconds left in overtime. State struggled all day against a hot UNC team, but never gave up and even brought the game to within 10 points late in the game. Warren had 21 points, and Des Lee added 18. The men's basketball team is 14-8, and their next game will be this Saturday at Miami. The women's basketball team only played once this past week, it was a very important game against the 8th-ranked Maryland Terrapins. The Wolfpack got what was arguably their most important win of the season, beating the Terrapins 72-63. to State only played seven players, but had three players in double figures, with Maisha Goodwin-Coleman scoring 16, Markeisha Gatling scoring 15, and Lanique Brown scoring 12. The women's basketball team is now 19-3 on the year and is ranked number 14 in the nation. Their next game will be at home against Wake Forest this Thursday. The men's tennis team recently traveled north to play in matches against Indiana and 26th-ranked Michigan. Both were extremely close matches, but the Wolfpack managed to win both by a score of 4-3. They are now 5-1 and one on the season, and their next match will be at home this Friday when they try to get revenge for their loss against VCU earlier this year. Although most eyes were on the NC State-UNC basketball game this past weekend, the wrestling team was also in action against the 23rd-ranked Tar Heels. In an enthralling match, the Wolfpack was able to come out with a 19-16 victory over UNC. Sophomore Nick Gwiazdowski has become one of the top-ranked wrestlers in the nation and will most likely compete for both an ACC and national championship at the 285-pound weight class. The wrestling team is now 12-4, and and their next bout will be against Virginia this Sunday. In their last home meet of the season, the swimming and diving teams faced off against Virginia. The men beat the 20th-ranked Cavs by a score of 157-141. to 141. However, the women were defeated by a score of 178.5 to 115.5. Senior Jonathan Bofa's efforts on senior night led to him being announced as the ACC Male Swimmer of the Week for the third time this year, which leads the ACC. The men and women's swimming and diving teams will be in action in Greensboro on the 26th and 19th of February, respectively, for the ACC championships. Other NC State Athletics news, Wolfpack basketball great Julius Hodge was announced as an ACC legend this week and will be honored at the ACC tournament this March. Also, congratulations to Russell Wilson, Stephen Hauschka, and J.R. Sweezy winning the Super Bowl with the Seattle Seahawks this past Sunday. Nate Irving, another former football player, 
also had a fantastic game for the opposing Denver Broncos. That's it for me today, but as always, if you want more in-depth sports coverage, please tune in tomorrow at 7 for Pulse of the Pack right here on WKNC. Thanks, Ben. The time is 7.22. When you think of paper science, the first thing that comes to mind is probably something along the lines of, that's a thing? It definitely is, and its applications are many and varied. In a recent undertaking, a group from NC State's paper science and engineering department is changing lives of women and girls in Africa. A significant problem is occurring right now in developing countries around the world. Millions of girls and women without access to proper hygienic care are forced to miss work or school during menstruation. The options available to these women are often too expensive, unhygienic, and ineffective. Spearheaded by a group called Sustainable Health Enterprises, an initiative is being worked on right here at NC State to help end this problem. This enterprise, this is called Sustainable Health Enterprises, or SHE, right? You get it? And run by an amazing woman called Elizabeth Sharp, and is a nonprofit dedicated to the health issues concerning women all over the world, based up in Boston. She's tackled a lot of different issues, and then somehow she got onto the issue of the fact that in Rwanda, which is a very heavily impoverished country, there's such a level of poverty that people can't afford the common niceties and things that we take for granted. And as it turns out, one of those things for females are sanitary devices for when they're on their period. That's Dr. Med Bird, a teaching associate professor in the Paper Science and Engineering program here at NC State's College of Natural Resources. He's part of the effort that helped develop the technology to help these women. The women who are already in danger of being marginalized are discouraged from going to work or school when they're having their period because it's considered unclean. And so they fall farther and farther behind. But they can't afford even the most basic device. So Elizabeth said, is it possible that we can manufacture a device using locally sourced raw materials, something they have abundance of. And it turns out they have a lot of banana trees. And these trees actually grow as an annual plant. And then when they finish harvesting the fruit, all this stem stuff is laying down. And she had the idea, can some of that fiber be made into an absorbent product like is offered commercially? And can they make it locally for themselves, a cottage industry that lets them lift themselves out of the condition they're in? So she first came to a group of very clever kids at MIT, and these kids, even though they don't do pulp and paper, are not at MIT for no purpose. And they came up with a process that involved a very simple wet blending process followed by a dry blending process. And it made this amazingly fluffy, puffy, fibrous, hair-like material that was super absorbent. But they didn't have the ability to make large quantities of it. And at a certain point, she brought it to NC State and said, can we take this to completion? And we said, sure, we'll do this. So we took on the project. And we helped optimize it, and we made some large quantities of it. And in the testing of it, it turns out that this material not only is absorbent, it is more absorbent than any commercial hygiene device out there right now. No chemicals, no heat, just water and shear and this banana fiber. Don't get me started on how miraculous the banana tree is. Uh, The fiber that's in a banana plant is just amazing stuff. It's an amazing development. And, of course, she got excited and her team got excited. And so the next step in the process was we hired a postdoctoral or uh, a research fellow to come over and work on it. He did the laboratory bench work and further optimized the process. And then came a very big step. 
Elizabeth said, we want to go to pilot production in Rwanda. Can you help us find machines that will do this so we can make maybe 100 pounds a day and start pad production? Now, that's a big order. Who is going to get on a plane and fly to a country they know nothing about and take local people with very little training and education and two machines that have appeared out of the blue from an airplane and set up production? And that's where our student, Tyson Huffman, comes in. And Tyson is a junior in the paper science and engineering program. He's an alternative student. He comes to us from the Marines. He looks it. He's a big old fella, and he's mean looking. But one thing he's got is a heart of gold. And he was already laying out for a co-op. Actually, he was working on his daddy's farm. And I called him and said, this is an opportunity. What do you think about it? It took him about 24 hours to say, this is something I'm passionate about. I will be that person. So last fall, he flew to Rwanda. And in the space of about six weeks, he took them, almost unbelievably, from a group of people milling about two machines with no tools, nothing, to a self-sustaining fiber production. And now, the second challenge is now that we've got all this fiber, how do we build the machines that make the individual pads in the quantities needed by the women in this village and in the rest of the country? And now he's decided to stay on and tackle that challenge because he believes that nobody else can make it happen like he does. He has no fear. Like a lot of NC State students, he's got incredible leadership and incredible academics. So he is out there doing things that his professors cannot even dream of doing. So he's out there knocking it out of the park. They're trying to set up regional processing centers. So this is a huge task to go into production when you have nothing. And so I have no doubt that he'll make it work because he seems to make everything work. The startup of a new production facility out in Rwanda is certainly not without its challenges. Ideally, you'd want it to be a totally biodegradable pad so that when they were finished, there would be no disposal issues. It could be buried underground and would go back to nature. But you can't really make a sanitary device without a porous membrane, a polyliner, that lets liquid go one direction and doesn't come back. So there's still some challenges, and, and there's a lot of optimization yet to be done. And every time I talk to Tyson, he says, we have a new challenge, challenge will be addressed, challenge will be fixed. This endeavor opens the door for local women to jumpstart their own businesses to manufacture and distribute these pads in other regions. This empowerment of women has been shown to be a critical element in bringing progress to communities in developing countries. The production process used for these pads could even be employed for other purposes. If you take the process a little further and do a little more mechanical shear, it actually turns into a beautiful paper-making pulp that that makes a sheet with that texture to it. And so you're thinking, well, maybe we can make hygienic pads, and also turn it into a cottage paper industry for handmade paper that could be sold to tourists or somewhere. So now you've got a different cottage industry coming in. NC State's involvement in a project like this is not the first of its kind. Dr. Bird highlights one example of the types of global initiatives that NC State is contributing to. If you look on campus, there are people who are working with global health and world health initiatives, like Dr. Mary McCord over in the College of Textiles is really super plugged into this kind of stuff. She is something else, and she is constantly traveling to different sites around the world looking for ways that they can plug graduate students and undergraduates in to initiatives that help people's lives. So there is a lot going on on campus, and sometimes it's below the surface. And it's very clear that this is exactly the type of work that students across campus are seeking to be a part of. If you think about the concept of service learning, where you have a student who's not only learning and applying his pulp and paper or fiber engineering skills, but also doing something that fundamentally affects people's lives, people who are in need, that is the best kind of learning of all, is when you can do something that makes a difference in people's lives. And that's why NC State is very dedicated to the concept of service learning.
Students or listeners that want to help or get involved with this incredible project should email Dr. Bird at med underscore byrd at ncsu.edu. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage. Thanks, Nick. Finding a lawyer for minor charges can be a struggle at times. A group here in Raleigh is taking advantage of the app-driven age we live in and trying to make it easier for all of us. Michaela sat down with the developer. My first question is, what made you come up with this idea? Bernie says is an app for folks who need lawyers. It starts off with basic traffic tickets. If you have this app on your iPhone, very soon Droid, you would, if you get a traffic ticket, speeding ticket, careless and reckless, anything that a cop gives you on a piece of paper, if it looks like you're in trouble, then Bernie can help. So it works like this. You take a picture, upload that picture, and answer a couple of questions about it. What happened? What's your driving record like? Something like that. Real, real easy stuff. Attorneys who are on the site will look at it, and they'll offer their, their services, bid, if you will, a uh, little bit misleading to say bid. It's not exactly like this eBay sort of thing where, you know, you can get sniped at the end and everybody's, you know, waiting in the shadows to put in the last bid and get accepted. It's more like the attorney who can offer his or her services would, would offer. The other attorneys would see maybe the number of bids but would not see who's high, who's low, who is bidding, none of that stuff. But it would all be presented to the user. And so after having all of these bids, the user can compare the attorneys by going to the various attorneys' websites and looking at uploaded bios and so on. The process of vetting and comparing attorneys is made very, very efficient. You find the one you like, you pay with PayPal, credit card, secure server. There's virtually instantaneous communication via texting between you and the attorney, what's going on in my case, etc. I'm in court your case just got continued, bad judge, or this is what happened, and this is the fine you have to pay. Never, ever, ever will you have to, for many of these cases, go to court. You won't have to open a phone book, try to find <laughs> an attorney. A raw Google search, which folks think is pretty efficient, is not even necessary because all of the attorneys are, are clamoring for the business. And let me say a word about that. I've been practicing law in Raleigh for 20 years or so, and there is no shortage of attorneys. There are all kinds of attorneys around. And there's a lot of competition. All of these attorneys are clamoring for the business. The problem is it's so hard to compare them. It makes no sense just to go to the one who maybe has paid the most money for the ads that you see. Maybe on Google ads gets ranked up at the top because he pays the most. doesn't mean that he or she is the best for the job. just means that they happen to have an ad budget that's like that. I think that's somewhat unfair. I think that Bernie says is a great way for consumers to make sense of all of this jumble of information about attorneys that there is out there. Very convenient. Like I say, if you're in Utah and you're skiing, right? <laughs> don't you like skiing in Utah? So uh, you get a traffic ticket in Utah, and what do you do? You don't know anybody. Well, if you have the app, then you're okay. Would you say that you're kind of leaning towards smaller law firms and not like these big, big law firms? Absolutely. You know, these 100-member law firms, 300-member law firms, a lot of these law firms that can boast offices in several different states, a lot of these guys, that's not what they do. The misdemeanor, small criminal case, and traffic law practitioner is primarily a solo practitioner. 
maybe a firm of two or three people, probably all law school buddies or something like that. So, yes, absolutely, this app is written with them in mind. Are you looking to expand to pass, like, traffic tickets and, like, going into something a little bit further? Well, anything that can be conveniently presented, any any legal situation, we'll say, that can be conveniently presented by means of uh, taking a picture is fair game for this. So the answer is yes, and we hope to expand into some other areas. For right now, I, I will say it's not just limited to traffic tickets. If you were to go to the website, that is not the, the iPhone mobile app, but the website itself, you would see that the user is given an opportunity to upload other type cases, and there's a pull-down menu with family law and business law and intellectual property and whatever else there is. Certainly, if you can describe it and perhaps take a picture of some relevant documents and upload all of that, that is largely what would take place, right, if you're at a lawyer's office meeting with him or her across a desk There'd be an exchange of information like that. Well, that's what this is. Now, why is it that uh, it works so well with traffic tickets? It's because all the relevant information is pretty much contained in one or two pieces of paper that the cop gives you, right? Whereas if you're talking an intellectual property case or shareholders derivative, it might be really much more complicated. Yeah, and we're excited, in fact, it has such applicability. We're happy right now just to deal with common traffic tickets. So you said that it's going to be coming out on Droid soon. Do you have any idea, like, how soon? We've been saying two weeks for a few weeks now. That's a few bugs we've got to iron out before we get it out there. So what is the technological side of Well, it's, it's mean, pretty simple. Um, what happens is when you take that picture on your phone and you hit the submit button, it sends that binary data to our database. And okay. what we do is when uh, a lawyer wants to see it, they log into the attorney side of the web app, and when it pulls it up, you'll see a thumbnail when they tap on the thumbnail, it'll pull it up. It's just calling it from that same database. When you first load the application, it's going to ask you a few questions. First thing it asks you is, what state did you receive your ticket in? Just a drop-down menu, you say. (laughs) What county? Well, I got a ticket in Wake. Then you go to the next screen, and it asks you, when is your court date? So you put that in there. That's usually on your ticket. What is your ticket ID? You enter your traffic ID, whatever that number might be. It's not a required field. Uh, then take a photo of your ticket. You just hit a button. You know, you can either then pull one up that you took before from the library on your phone or click the camera button and then just take a picture. And you're done. You know, you use the photo. It, it'll push it up there. What we're finding out, though, are, is that people are taking really crappy pictures on the other end or having trouble reading them. So we have some zoom features on their side and rotate because some people are uploading pictures that are sideways. So we're, we're kind of improving that. Uh, there are some other tools that we can use. We haven't done it yet, but uh, you have you ever taken a picture of your of a check to deposit it? Have you noticed that usually there's like little ends or little corners? Well, and it uses your gyroscope too on your phone to make sure you're orienting the camera in a particular angle so that you don't take these angular photos of it. We're going to be adding that to it pretty soon. Software's never done. It's a work in progress. It's always uh, There's always some bug we didn't catch somewhere. You've been getting a lot of local, I guess, support from anything? Is there anything you want to add about that? Just to shamelessly plug ours again, Bernie says is B-E-R-N-I-E-S-E-Z, B-E-R-N-I-E-S-E-Z dot com. Oh, here's, this is really important. Attorneys will pay to be on the site. Folks will never pay for this, meaning the user. It's absolutely free. The app is free. The The service itself is free. Attorneys will will pay to subscribe to the site. We really see this as being, A, a convenient thing uh, 
my partner Jim just described uh, how very often now with your, your bank, you are allowed to make deposits using an iPhone, take a, a picture, and that rendering of the check is enough to deposit. Well, guess what? This is the, the self-same technology used to solve another problem. Something we haven't really mentioned much is typically when you get a ticket, you're going to get 10 to 15 letters in the mail, paper letters. And you as the, the, the person that got the ticket have to go through them all. At some point, you're just going to start throwing them in the trash. You don't care anymore. And this is just a little different. It kind of puts the, the situation in reverse where you're posting this online and letting lawyers come to you instead yep. of them telling you how good they are. It's a much better way for a user experience. So is this nationwide? You can go to any, like, you can get a ticket in any state and it'll still pop up with the lawyers in that area, or is it just lawyers in North Carolina who can help you? Well, as, as Jim was saying, I had mentioned Utah, and, and we're not in Utah yet, but that's only because we're just finishing up our beta round right now. Uh, as as soon as, I guess it's March 1st, that's uh, the date that we're hoping. Yeah, and we're hoping March 1st we'll get all the kinks out of the system, at least enough of them, to then consider migrating over, expanding into Virginia. And then that will be our next test bit is, hey, can this thing scale to the next state? And if so... Try that for a month or so. If things go well in Virginia, then we can start really looking into expanding much quicker. Who came up with the Bernie rap? Well, actually, uh, the Bernie Pete, rap, Pete, actually, it? Peter did. Uh, the whole idea came from, from Terrence, obviously. Uh, okay. But I had a buddy of mine. He actually came up with those lyrics, the ones you saw on, online. Mm-hmm. It just came to him driving. Was that we, we sent him to a studio to record a song. He, he kind of came up with a song. So we have an actual Bernie song. All right, well, thanks, you guys, for coming in. Again, it's BernieSays.com with Terrence McKinley and Jim Young. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Michaela O'Connor. Thanks, Michaela. NC State's Go Red for Women initiative is launching on Friday. In case you're not sure what exactly that means, here's Desiree with more. NC State is supporting the American Heart Association's efforts to combat heart disease. Did you know heart disease is the number one killer of women and that heart disease causes one in three women's death each year, killing approximately one woman every minute? Go Red for Women, the American Heart Association's initiative, starts this Friday, February 7th, with National Wear Red Day. Head over to Fountain or Clark Dining Halls on Friday and you'll find healthy menu items highlighted on the menu, hydration stations, red, well, pink ice cream, and chalkboards containing informative heart disease information and statistics. Go on a stroll through the Free Expression Tunnel on Friday. It'll be painted red by undergraduate nutrition majors. If you pass through the brickyard between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m., you'll have the opportunity to see Miss Wolf, obtain free apples with the Go Red message, and get more informed about heart disease and State Goes Red for Women. You can pick up preventative information and receive free health screenings, including BMI, weight, and blood pressure if you go to the lobby of the University Recreation Offices near Carmichael Gym from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. You could even win free prizes throughout the day if you go to Carmichael Gym. Prizes will be handed out to those who are wearing red. An estimated 43 million women in the U.S. are affected by heart disease. So join the initiative to raise awareness to the issue of heart disease and the many ways to combat it. So don't forget to go red for women by wearing red this Friday, February 7th. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Desiree Ward.
Thanks, Desiree. Art enthusiasts of the Triangle may have noticed a lack of physical location for NC State's Gregg Museum and of Art and Design, but that doesn't mean they're not still providing the area with great exhibitions. Nick has the story. The Gregg Museum of Art and Design is what is known as a collecting museum hosted right here at NC State. Since its inception, the museum has provided university students and faculty, as well as the public, a growing collection useful for various types of research and educational opportunities. The Gregg started actually back in the late 1970s when the university realized that it had a large and growing art collection. There were art objects all over the university, often in professors' offices or in hallways and things like that. They'd been donated by previous alums and, you know, people that wanted to give something to the university. And after a while, they realized that they had quite a few things on the campus. And they realized there was a need to start keeping track of them, basically. Because once somebody had had something hanging in their office suite or, you know, in the hallway next to their door, they sort of began to feel a sense of ownership with it. And often when they would retire or move to a different campus or something like that, the art would go with them. So they originally hired a man whose job was to go around the campus and basically number everything, keep track of it, figure out what it was, and that sort of thing. That job gradually morphed into the realization that they could actually uh, create exhibits and things like that based on the objects that they had. And so they hired a woman named Charlotte Brown. Her name is now Charlotte Wainwright, who became the full-time curator of the collection. Then she became director of what they call the Visual Arts Center. That was based in Tally. The Visual Arts Center organized programs for the campus art programs, they'd bring in lecturers and, you know, host small symposiums and things like that. And they would stage very small exhibitions back then. Eventually, that grew into something called the uh, Visual Arts Center. And then the Visual Arts Center finally acquired a building in 1990, which was attached to the front of Tally. People who were here last year will remember a sort of large white concrete structure on the Cates Avenue side of Tally that stood up on pilings. And that was called the Gallery of Art and Design for many years. And about seven or eight years ago, they renamed it the Gregg Museum of Art and Design. That's Roger Manley, the director of the Gregg Museum of Art and Design. The museum is named for Nancy and John Gregg, who contributed significantly to the collection and were champions for the arts at NC State. Over the past few years, the museum has seen a lot of change. Initially, it was hosted in Tally Student Center. The space at Tally was, because it was embedded in the student center, was very accessible to students, but it consisted of two major galleries, two, you know, media, was a sort of a small gallery and a medium-sized gallery and a lobby. And then upstairs above that were our administrative offices. And it opened directly off of the main lobby in, in Tally, um, which was a great location for a number of reasons in that students walked by it a lot or whenever we'd have performances in Stewart Theater, people would sometimes come out during an intermissions and go into the museum, see whatever was on display. But the problem was that because it was tied with strictly with Tally, we were locked into the university hours schedule whenever there was a holiday or anything we had to close the museum. You know, uh, Christmas holidays and summer is often a time when people like to go to museums, and that would be the very time that when we would be closed, which was kind of frustrating sometimes. Also, since we didn't have access to the outdoors, We weren't able to do things like, which we will be able to do, 
in the future location, but we weren't able to do things like have uh, outdoor sculpture exhibits or host concerts or arts festivals or any of that sort of thing. We could only do what could be done in an indoor museum setting, you know, which limits you in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of art these days is performance art or installation art involving natural materials and all that sort of stuff, and we couldn't do that. As campus residents are well aware, however, Tally is undergoing a lot of renovations, meaning the Gregg Museum was left without a home. When the Tally renovations were announced, um, the all the organizations that were based in Tally were told that you know there would be uh, some, some reconfiguring of their spaces. Some some would be moving around. Uh, some of the programs that were based there would be moving out temporarily, but we'd be moving back in. And for a while, we thought the Greg itself might be moving back into uh, Tally Student Center. Over uh, uh, as the as the architecture, uh, as the planning for the new building um, evolved, it became more and more apparent that Tally really wasn't the best place to put the Greg. That it would need to go somewhere else on the campus. So we began this process of looking all over campus for other places to put it, and we considered thirteen or fourteen other potential sites. Things ranging from the old television station over near the McKimmon Center to the uh, parking lot next to Reynolds. You know, that we would have lost that other open parking lot and built a museum there. Uh, there are a number of places that were considered. But at, uh, at the same time, the uh, chancellor's, uh, there was a new chancellor's residence being built on Centennial Campus. So the chancellor, uh, the new chancellor, Randy Woodson, would be, uh, moving over there, and he and his wife actually uh, championed the idea of putting the Greg in in what had been their previous home. It had been their residence for the, all the the chancellors since 1928, which is uh, a, a, a largish house just across the uh, across Pullen Road from uh, the bell tower. It's uh, if if you know where uh, David's Dumplings or Loco Pops or uh, <laughs> Players retreat. It's in that area, and uh, not only was that uh, in the most adaptable spot, it also turned out to be the most uh, economic. It was the cheapest place to put a new new museum because we could go ahead and take advantage of the fact that there was already a building there, and then add on to it. The location is just terrific. I mean, it's right there next to the uh, Hillsborough Street roundabout. Um, it'll be accessible to easily accessible to downtown Raleigh. It's easy, easily accessible to Cameron Village, so it's going to become uh, almost a shared uh, program with the city of Raleigh and and Wake County, because it's you know it'll be a new tourist destination for people coming to the campus. Coming from downtown Raleigh, the museum is going to be the very first part of NC State that they'll see, other than the bell tower itself. And then, you know, they'll turn between the bell tower and the museum to go ahead and enter the rest of the campus. So we feel like it's a really terrific location. We'll have uh, several acres of, of land around us to uh, do things like have outdoor film festivals and uh, outdoor, uh, you know, arts events, workshops. We can do uh, raku ceramic firing in the outdoors there. We can have, uh, you know, drum competitions, um, uh, sculpture events, all sorts of things can happen there that, that we could never do before. So we're really excited about that. It's just going to really open up the possibilities for the museum and the activities that we'll be able to do. 
it's also only a three minute walk from the College of Design and the and the uh, and all the humanities classes. So it's going to be much more accessible to the to the to the students who use us the most. Although we do want to reach out, and we we we're making efforts to reach out to. Uh, all the engineering and technology students here on campus. A lot of our exhibits lately have had to do with with uh, science and mathematics and engineering because we feel like uh, you know we might as well play to the strengths of the student body here. I always like to point out to people. Uh, to me, NC State has a more rounded uh, student body than a lot of other places because I always like to say there's a, there are a lot of scientists and technicians. Who uh, play music and 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 make art, but there are very few artists and musicians who do science and technology. You know, I, I feel like we're uh, we, we have a much more balanced group of people to to uh, play to here. But just because the Greg doesn't have a home doesn't mean it's not currently showing art. Right now, we're having exhibits and we're sort of borrowing galleries until we can get our own own galleries back. We have a show up right now at the African American Cultural Center in Witherspoon Student Center on the second floor called Theater of Belief, and it's a large format color photographs of African ritual costumes. We're also doing a show, kind of a concurrent show by the same photographer. Her name is Phyllis Galimbo, but she's having a show at, at Meredith College, which we also organized, and that one's called King's Chiefs and Women of Power, and it's a exhibit also about costume, but it's a, the show in the African American Cultural Center is about how costume gives people the chance to transform themselves and become the ancestors or become the spirits or the gods temporarily, whereas the show in the at Meredith is about the projection of who these people are. They're kings and queens of Africa dressed in their robes and sitting on their thrones and, you know, holding their leopard skin capes and things like that that indicate the power and tell people who they are so that the power is kind of projected rather than something they're trying to change into. This has been part one of Eye on the Triangle's feature on the Greg Museum. This week highlighted the past and present of the museum, but be sure to tune in next week to hear all about the future of this great art museum. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage. Thanks, Nick. And now, here are the campus happenings for the next week. Here's what's going on at NC State. Wednesday at 6 p.m., come learn how Care USA, an international nonprofit, faces the challenges of aligning its business practices to meet the needs of donors as it seeks to empower recipients. Join the Institute for Nonprofits at NC State for a public talk on the transforming role of international NGOs. The talk will be held at the NC State University Club on Hillsborough Street, with refreshments provided. Also tomorrow is a coastal conversation on North Carolina's rising sea level problem. The event will feature the new documentary Shored Up, followed by a panel discussion featuring the film's producer and director, the town manager of Nags Head, a representative from the Battle for North Carolina's Coast, and representatives from the Collaborative for Science Communication. Stop by the Hunt Library Auditorium at 7 p.m. to catch the screening. Also tomorrow night at 7 is the Student Short Film Showcase. The fourth annual Student Short Film Showcase will allow you to experience the talent of NC State students as they screen their best short films. 
Ranging from computer animations to experimental pieces, all films are under four minutes long. The event will take place in the D.H. Hill Auditorium. The College of Sciences at NC State is hosting Access Day on Thursday morning. Industry representatives will have the chance to meet with faculty, learn about ongoing research, and form partnerships that solve difficult technological and scientific problems. Thursday evening is the next in the Lawrence M. Clark Lecture Series. Author and medical ethicist Harriet Washington will speak on the social issues surrounding health and medicine at 6 p.m. in Witherspoon Student Center, Sankofa Room. Friday, the Poole College's Spring Career Fair will be bringing employers from various businesses and industries to campus. Students from the Poole College and other NC State colleges are welcome, as are NC State alumni. Friday afternoon, the Multicultural Student Affairs Office is hosting the 19th Annual Freshman Honors Convocation, recognizing the academic achievements of diverse freshmen. The event begins at 4.30 in Witherspoon Student Center. Saturday is the 10th Annual Krispy Kreme Challenge, a charity race that donates all proceeds to the North Carolina Children's Hospital. Participants are challenged with running 2.5 miles, scarfing down a dozen donuts, and running 2.5 miles back. So you might want to be careful if you're walking around town on Saturday. This weekend at the Campus Cinema, the films Captain Phillips and Don John will be showing. Check uab.ncsu.edu for times. For more information on these events and more, go to ncsu.edu slash calendar. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage. And of course, this Friday night is the first weekend of WKNC's Double Barrel Benefit 11. Double Barrel Benefit is our big annual fundraiser, so we host a bunch of local bands, and this weekend it's The Love Language, Hammer No More The Fingers, Towers, and Ghost Blonde, and so that show will be over at Cat's Cradle in Carborough. Next weekend we've got Mount Moriah, Bombadil, which was just announced yesterday, Lonelands, and Daniel Bachman here in Raleigh at the Lincoln Theater. Uh, so yeah, so get excited for some good music and help support your favorite public radio station WKNC by coming out and as always if you heard anything you liked you hated or anything that made you think you can let us know on our Facebook page you can also tweet at us and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com underscore sorry slash WKNC underscore EOT for more local news also be sure to check our blog at blog.wknc.org where you can also download our podcast finally be sure to consume alcohol legally and responsibly well, that's all we have for now. We'd like to thank you, thank our international news correspondent, Sydney Bloom, meteorologist Katie Costa, sportscaster Ben Hefner, poetry connoisseur Selma Abdullah High, and contributor Michaela O'Connor. Be sure to tune in next week and stay tuned for After Hours up next. For On the Triangle, I'm Andrew Eichen. And I'm Nick Savage. Good night. <laughs>